there isn't a week that goes by I do not get a phone call. I get some from the Yeshiva Shavelt too, here and there, but mostly modern Orthodox. Um, you know, my kid is just not interested anymore. And it's usually not some sort of deep philosophical conundrum. It's just not exciting and compelling enough. It's either going to be like passionate and I'm going to go for it, or I'll just continue what I'm doing now. And here's the problem we have in the modern We pride ourselves on being nuanced. We pride ourselves on walking that line of not throwing everything out that's not Torah and only embracing a Torah-only approach. We believe in Torah Mada. We believe in Zionism, even though it's not you know, fully in line with Torah. We got our own versions of religious Zionism, of Kuk the Rav and all that. So it's much more nuanced. So it's by definition not going to be all in. But we've got to figure out a way of becoming passionate about that. Because without passion, our kids are going to leave it. I'm Scott Kahn, and this is The Orthodox Conundrum. This is The Orthodox Conundrum on JewishCoffeeHouse.com. I'm Scott Kahn. This episode is, in some ways, two distinct podcasts in one. One about outreach in Kiruv, and one about some major spiritual challenges that exist in the modern Orthodox world today. Many in the centrist or modern Orthodox world are uncomfortable with Kiruv and outreach. It's often associated with acting with condescension towards people who are not Orthodox, objectifying people who are not Orthodox, not acting forthrightly towards people who are not Orthodox. Perhaps most concerning, though, is the suspicion that Kiruv professionals act as though we have all the answers, that orthodoxy is a perfect society, and that we need to reach out because everything within orthodoxy is more or less perfect. Many of us would argue that we need to get our own house in order before convincing other people to join the team. Rabbi Mark Wilds, though, is one of the rare modern Orthodox Jews who is deeply involved in and believes in Kiruv and outreach to unaffiliated and less affiliated Jews. I asked him how he responds to these criticisms of Kiruv professionals and organizations, how we should define the real goals of Kiruv organizations, and why most Kiruv professionals seem to have a Haredi or Hasidic orientation. Perhaps even more important, however, was our discussion of the problems that modern orthodoxy needs to address. We talked about spiritual anemia, problems that exist in shuls, the longing or lack thereof for the divine presence, the differences between experience and intellect in the approach to God, how much we should emphasize dogma, and above all, the need to bring God back into the center of our consciousness. This conversation, again, really two conversations, was fascinating, and I hope that it gives you food for thought as we enter Elul and the days leading up to Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. Rabbi Mark Wilds is the founder and director of Manhattan Jewish Experience, MJE, a highly successful Jewish outreach and educational program that has resulted in 344 Jewish marriages. The program engages and reconnects unaffiliated Jewish men and women in their 20s and 30s with Judaism and the Jewish community. Rabbi Wilds is the author of the 40-Day Challenge, Daily Jewish Insights to Prepare for the High Holidays, and Beyond the Instant, Jewish Wisdom for Lasting Happiness in a Fast-Paced Social Media World. Rabbi Wilds earned a BA in Psychology from Yeshiva University, a law degree from the Cardozo School of Law, a master's degree in International Affairs from Columbia University, and rabbinic ordination from the Rabbi Isaac Elchanan Theological Seminary of Yeshiva University. Rabbi Mark Wilds, thank you very much for joining me today on the Orthodox Conundrum Podcast. It is a pleasure and honor to be here. 
I want to ask you about the Manhattan Jewish Experience as a starter, because you are the founder of that organization. What is it exactly? So MGE is dedicated to engaging the very large uh, Jewish population in Manhattan and surrounding areas of 20s and 30s that are either, I guess, what we would call unaffiliated or less affiliated. Uh, so our, you know, our, our goal is to engage as many um, 20s and 30s that are not in the Orthodox community in Jewish life. Uh, we do that through Shabbat dinners and classes, retreats. We just came back from Israel. We had an amazing trip. And yeah, started it 23 years ago. It's been amazing. I want to ask you about that idea of engaging people who are unaffiliated or, as you say, less affiliated. Because would you call, first of all, MJE a Kiruv organization? Is that a fair description? Yeah. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. So one of the concerns people often have with Kiruv per se is mm-hmm. the idea that they say, wait, it's wonderful to reach out to people. We all want more people to be Torah observant. But doesn't it neglect, perhaps, our own Orthodox community? Because we have a lot of fixing that has to be done among the affiliated. There's a lot of work that has to be done within our own community. So how would you answer people who say, first, we have to make sure our own house is in order before we start trying to tell everyone else to come in? Yeah, that's a great point. A lot of people are put off by the term Kiruv because it does seem to imply we've got it all straight. We're we're doing great, us Orthodox Jews, and everybody else is, you know, unless we save their souls, <laughs> we're, you know, they're gone. So I think we, you know, I use the term Kiruv in a broader sense. Um, and I think that, and I know this is going to sound a little trite, but we, those of us involved in reaching out to those less connected, stand to gain at least as much as the people we're trying to inspire. Can you explain what you mean by that? That's very interesting. You know, when, when you are forced to, to, I don't want to say sell Judaism, but explain Judaism to people that weren't raised with it, you have to articulate things in a way that you and I, you know, the best of yeshivas haven't really helped us do very well. It forces us really to think deeper. Why do I do this mitzvah? Why do I believe in God? Why do I think the Torah comes from God? All of these issues that we kind of take for granted, we now have to be able to present to other people. And when, you, when you're forced to present it to another person, it deepens your own Judaism, your own hashkafa, your own machshava, your own thoughts and ideas. And it forces you back to the basics, which I have to tell you, we, we're not so great at. You stop a typical Orthodox Jew in the street and you say, why do you believe in God? Or why do you believe that the Torah comes from God? Or it's mitzvot, you know, are not just made up by a bunch of men, you know, imposing their values, you know, their antiquated values on modernity. You know, uh, you have to sit back and think and not make something up, but something you actually believe. Because here's the deal. People can tell when you're not fudging it, but don't really believe what you're selling. It's a really healthy thing for us. And I don't think it implies we've got it all together. I do think it implies that if you're reaching out and you're doing so from a Torah perspective, that you're bought into Torah. Mm-hmm. Does that mean that you are, you know, perfect? Your Shabbat observance is perfect. Your learning is up to par. Not necessarily. And I think people who we reach out to also understand that, you know, Orthodox Jews are human. They make mistakes. They're, they're, our understanding of Torah is not complete. It's a work in progress. And I think if we come off, you know, with humility, like we're supposed to be, and 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 just, you know, explaining, look, I, I just love this. Like, you know, it's like you, I always use this analogy. You go to a good movie, okay? 
Um, I love my wife very much, okay? And I love the movie that I just saw or a book I just read. So if I don't come back and say, honey, you got to see this flick or honey, you got to read this movie, you got to read this book, then either I didn't love the movie or I don't love my wife very much because, and that's kind of the way I see outreach. Like if you're really bought into Judaism, you believe it, then you believe it not just for you, you believe it for all Jewish people. And if you actually care about your fellow Jew, and you think this can improve their life, you know, then then how could we not share it? I think that's a really nice attitude. And I really like that metaphor of going to a movie or reading a book that you love and wanting to share that idea with someone else that you love. But there's a very careful balance that has to be taking place here between telling someone about something that you really like and becoming condescending and saying, no, 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 if you don't like this, there's something wrong with you. And that's a difficult needle to thread. I know that people often worry that in Kiruv, we're saying, even if we don't have all the answers, I've got more answers than you do. And whatever you're doing, the way you think about the world is really mistaken because I know something that you don't know. And in that sense, I say this as someone who appreciates Kiruv. It's not a criticism, but I wonder how you as a Kiruv rabbi or how MJE or as a Kiruv organization or how outreach professionals anywhere they may be can be careful not to slip into that idea that, I'm objectifying the object, so to speak, of my Kiruv because I want to give you something and you may not want to receive it. How do you make sure that doesn't really happen? Because treating someone as an object obviously isn't your goal. Yeah, and, and I think the way you articulated that question really captures the how uncomfortable so many people are with outreach, especially in my world. I'm like sort of like the poster child for Yeshiva University, modern orthodoxy. I actually started MGE because I, I felt that there wasn't a, an open slash modern orthodox kind of outreach. Mo, mo, much of Kirov is more Haredi, Haredi light. Um, and by the way, kudos to all of my Haredi and Haredi light Kirov colleagues. Those are my brothers and sisters in arms. <laughs> and uh, and God bless them for what they do. But it's, it's it doesn't reflect my machshava. And a lot of people in our world they're put off by this. And I have a lot of issues actually with people on my own staff who just like you do you, I do me. You know, I'm happy to share Torah if somebody comes over to me and pulls it out of me, but I'm not gonna go proactively. And what I say to that is, and, 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 and I'm using this to answer your question is, we have a gift and that gift is called the Torah. That doesn't make me better. That doesn't make my you know, outlook on the world perfect. But what it does is that it gives me something that I can say to this other person. This, I believe, comes from a higher place. And I think it's got wisdom that can help you with the issues that you and I are both grappling in life. Consider this approach and consider it because it is, it, it is beyond us. And it's not just something made up by a bunch of rabbis a couple of hundred or thousands of years ago. It's something that has divine significance to it. And not everybody's going to agree with what I just said. Not everyone's going to accept that, but they'll listen because people are considering all sorts of options from Buddhism in terms of Near Eastern religions to, you know, pure rationalism, atheism. So why shouldn't Judaism have a seat at the table? And, and in order to sort of, um, I guess, deal with the issue that you're raising, it's all about humility. It's all about how you put it over. I mean, I'll tell you a story. You know, years ago, um, you mentioned that your brother, uh, Davins at OZ, which is Upper West Side Orthodox Shul, I was the assistant rabbi there many years ago, and I used to run a beginner's minute. And once in a while, when I couldn't be there on Shabbos, I asked a good friend of mine um, if he could run the minion instead of me. 
very bright and learned guy. And when I came back, um, I asked some of my students, so what did you think of so-and-so? Rabbi, just because I don't know much about Judaism doesn't mean I'm an idiot. I said, what do you mean? What did he say that made you? Well, you know, every time he said something, he slowed down. He spoke very slowly. I have an audible, like a, a hearing impairment. You know, like, and, and some of it is just style. If you speak to people like you would talk to any Orthodox Jew, just explain your terms. I went, when I went to law school, my, one of my professors there was Rabbi Bleich, who was a big Tamachach, a big Torah scholar. I had him at Moayu as well. And I watched him teach a class for completely, I guess what we would call a secular Jew or uninformed, un less educated Jews at the law school, okay? And he was able to explain some of the most profound legal and philosophical concepts without having to say one Hebrew word and without dumbing it down. And I think if we can do that, if we can give over substantive, sophisticated Torah in a way that we take our audience seriously, and our audience is educated, smart, motivated, young Jewish professionals, just not Jewishly knowledgeable, they're gonna hear that and say, oh, that's interesting. But if we give it over in a way like, listen, I have a monopoly on the truth. You know nothing, all of your liberal values are garbage. And I'm coming from the perspective of the great Chachamim and Torah. And here we are, obviously people are not gonna hear it. I wanna talk about that last point. I almost wanna flip it. Going back to that, metaphor you used earlier about the movie or the thing that you love you want to share with other people. And this idea that we're not being condescending, we're not telling you that we have all the answers, but if there's something that I really care about and I respect you as a person and you're somebody that I care about, of course, I want to share this with you. In that case, when do you stop? When do you say, like, you know, if my wife says, I don't really want to watch that movie, I might say to her, no, 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 really, it's a really good movie. Why don't you try it? You have to know exactly when it's time to stop pushing. So how does that work in the world of Kiruv, or, or at least in the world that you work in? How do you know when to push someone to get this thing, which is a wonderful thing, and when to say, you know what, I guess you're not interested in buying? Yeah, I mean, I can answer it in a, in a halachic sense. You know, the Chazanish famously said that there's no mitzvah tochiach. I mean, this is not something we're just doing because it's a nice idea. It's one of the 613 mitzvot. Uh, based on a pasuk in, in, in Sefer Vayikra, which the, Ra the Rambam codifies and others, that it refers to specifically um, helping those not keeping a mitzvah or about to sin to prevent them from sinning, that you're supposed to do what you can to, to you know, encourage them to perform that positive mitzvah or refrain from the negative mitzvah. The Chazanish said that mitzvah only applies when you think you can be successful. If you don't think you can be successful, now no one's going to be successful by, by shouting Shabbos and throwing rocks, even if you're making the rocks before Shabbos. I love that. It's unbelievable. <laughs> but, you know, Shabbos observance is going to be more like, why don't you, I heard this great organization is having a dinner, they're having an interesting speaker, as opposed to, you know, you should really be keeping Shabbos. Because that's nonsense. That's ridiculous. Someone who's not raised to observe Shabbat is not going to receive that information favorably. Um, when you start seeing that someone is either blowing you off or just not interested, you stop. It's as simple as that. And the, and the halacha does not demand we continue because it's a mitzvah, you know, insofar as you believe you can be successful. Now, that doesn't mean you stop forever. You stop then, maybe come back a week later and say, and that, that's why I always like to sort of size up my students. Everybody's different. 
you know, people are more socially oriented. They're not as intellectually oriented. I don't invite them to my classes. I tell them to come to a Shabbat dinner. We just had a cocktails on the roof. Someone might be very Zionistically inclined, but not terribly spiritual. So I'll bring them to, a, you know, an Israel event or march with us on the Israeli Day Parade. It's fun walking down Fifth Avenue. So I stop when I see it's not working. And, um, and, and thankfully, that approach is, I, I believe, in line with the halacha as well. I want to come back to that because I have a question about that too when you talk about finding the right approach for each person. But I want to go back to something you said a few minutes ago, how you're sort of the poster child for why you modern orthodoxy in the world of Kiruv. And I think that's very true. I think it's very rare that people in the centrist or modern orthodox world are involved in outreach to the same degree that people in the Haredi or Haredi light or Hasidic world are involved. Obviously, there are exceptions and there are people who defy such characterization. But I think by and large, as a general summary, we can say that it's much rarer among modern Orthodox Jews to find Kiruv organizations that are in line with their beliefs. Why is that so? Why do you think that's the case? Uh, well, there's so much to say about this. I think it's a great question. I think that we don't, I think we have a little of an, more of an ambivalent attitude towards outreach. We haven't had a, a Lubavitch Rebbe that implanted within us that you got to go out in front of a car of people. Our intellectual Rebbe was Rav Salvechik, who was really, was dealing with a different America at the time and trying to foster the Orthodox community. Now, in his own way, Rav Salvechik did a huge amount of Kirov because Orthodoxy was like a joke when he came to the United States. Sure. And he and he ordained over 2,000 Musmachim at YU. And I mean, he was a force, like unbelievable. And intellectually, he's the person I and all my Rebbeim and colleagues continue to look to for Torah. And inspiration, but we didn't have a Rebbe. We didn't have a Lubavitch Rebbe that said the greatest thing you can do. You know, when I when I put out a position, I'm always looking for new help. I have 18 people working at MGE. I'm always looking. You know how many Chabadniks I could get in a second to fill those positions? You know how many why you guys I can't get to fill that job now? Why you're asking? I'm just. I think what we just we weren't raised to value it as much. We pay homage to it. We, we, we do NCSY for a couple of years. But then, like, you grow up and you get a real job. And a real job means either, you know, in the secular domain, it's, you know, lawyer or, you know, accountant or, you know, you computer science today. And a rabbi job is getting a, is getting a position in the synagogue as a pulpit rabbi or machanich in yeshiva. And, and those were kind of like we understand, we're comfortable with. We don't really have that very and, – and, and the other thing is practical. There's just not – it's, it's not like I have a million jobs out there for a Wayu Musmach or wherever that person learns to, you know, to fill a certain position, right? And, and what's the, what's the um, trajectory, the professional trajectory? You know, and a lot of it comes down to money because, you know, basically we eat what, you know, what we hunt. You come out of Wayu, you can get an assistant rabbi job in a big shul, and then you get your own little steller maybe out of town, and then you can build up and then get the big job in Teaneck or wherever it is, you know, and <laughs> that, that's kind of the trajectory that doesn't exist in the world of Kirov. Like you start snoring and you continue to snore, I'm sorry, until you drop, <laughs> until you can't do it anymore. That's your professional trajectory. Now I'm trying to change that a little, and I have been somewhat successful in pulling out of the woodwork uh, while you modern Orthodox types uh, to go into outreach. Um, I teach a course in the rabbinical school in REITs uh, for the last almost 13 years now. 
Um, I'm very close with Rabbi Mark Penner, who's the dean of REITs, and um, I talk to him about these issues all the time. I'm very close with Rabbi Ari Berman, uh, who's the president of YU. And to be perfectly honest, I think the OU, the YU, like I'm waiting for somebody to take us over. Maybe somebody who's listening to this, you know, to basically, basically replicate us. We have three sites in Manhattan and we're a pretty big operation, but we're regional. We're not all over the country or the world. Um, I need a real entity to be able to do that. And it's not just money. It's also creating a branch model, which is not so simple. But uh, getting back to your original question, we don't, it doesn't have the prestige it has in the Hasidic, in the Lubavitch world, I should say. Okay. And it doesn't have the money, you know, and the, um, the kind of professional trajectory for a quality YU guy to let go into. Now, I want to say this, though. It's not so true because if you put, apply yourself, I think you can earn a living. And Me'or, which is a much larger operation, which is a great Kirov organization on college campus, and they're like a feeder to Machlon Yaakov, Machlon Shlomo. Um, you know, there are people doing this as a livelihood. Um, but you have to really be, I think, a little more idealistic, like, Chabad, like our Chabad brothers and sisters are. Okay. I want to go back to that idea I mentioned a few minutes ago about different types of kiru for different people, whether it's an Israel Day parade for somebody who's very into Israel or a Shabbat dinner for somebody who would prefer something like that. I want to ask about the Kiruv endgame. And the reason I'm asking this is sometimes people look at it, and I've spoken to other people in Kiruv, and they were lamenting this fact. It doesn't mean that you necessarily will, but they say that very often funders of Kiruv look at it as, okay, how many people did you quote-unquote make from? How many people are fully Shomer Shabbos and sending their kids to Jewish day schools? And the question I have, and I don't have a good answer, but the question I have is, is the job of Kiruv to make somebody fully from? And if it does not do that, it is a failure of a sort? Or is the job of Kiruv to make someone have more Jewish attachment than he has now? In other words, I used to say this, I've mentioned this, I think, before on the podcast, I used to think it would be a nice thing. Imagine if there weren't a Chabad house, there were a Scott Khan house. I was making my own Kiruv organization and someone were to come in and learn with me for an hour a week for a year. And that was the end of that. Mm-hmm. And someone asked me afterwards, okay, well, what happened? I said, what happened? A Jew came and learned Torah for 52 hours during this past year that he wouldn't have otherwise. That's a success. If he would ask me, should I be Shomer Shabbos? I said, personally, do I think you should? Yes, but I'm not playing any games here. The fact that you learn now is... That's my goal right now, that you and I are learning together. And I realize that's one model, but the other model is, no, the goal is to get them to be really fully Shomer Shabbos. And I understand that too. What do you think is the correct model? Is it either one yeah. or somewhere and in the by, middle? By, by the way, you did a very good job articulating the two approaches. And I would say one is Chabad, you know, finding inherent value in the mitzvah itself, irrespective of where it takes the Jew. That's Chabad. And now that I've done a deeper dive into Tanya, I've been teaching Tanya for the last two and a half years, I see where it's coming from because they very much believe hashkafically you get a Jew to keep a mitzvah. I used to be very cynical when I see a Chabad guy in the street putting on tefillin on someone. I'm like, dude, maybe this guy doesn't even believe in God. What are you doing? But they very much believe, and there's Kabbalistic sources to back this up, that you get a Jew to keep a mitzvah, that's it. That's your job. Wherever it takes him, great. Takes him more, great. I'm sure the Chabad rabbi will be happy, but he's done his job because that's Kiruv. It's not your job to finish the entire process. Right. Now, the other extreme, and I used to get some funding, I'll just mention it because they're very vocal about it, the Wolfsons. Uh, Hands down, largest Kiruv funders in the last, I don't know, 
20 years, 30 years. Uh, and I had a, the honor of knowing Zev Wolf since the Chronicle of Racha. Um, I was in his office many times, like many Kirov rabbis, <laughs> not on my knees, but asking him for, for funding and for help. And I used to have to bring what I used to call tzitzis checklists. You'll appreciate this. What's a tzitzis checklist? I called it that. It's the name of a person, where they were religiously when they came to your organization and where they are now. Now, I refused to put their name down. I thought there was a confidentiality issue, so I put their initials. And I wrote down where they were and where they are now. And I was able to get a couple of years of funding from that. Uh, they had a little of a problem with my color of my yarmulke and while you and- It's a very nice white yarmulke for our listeners who don't see it. Right, so they were a little more to the right. They called me a dinosaur and said, you know, your old news is no, modern orthodoxy is dead and blah, blah, blah. And I just kept ignoring. I'm like, look, I'm here for a certain purpose. And I remember, by the way, as an aside, the third year, I remember, I was getting a nice check every year. And one time they were making comments about like the Hashkafa, modern orthodoxy. And I said, listen, I can't believe, I said, you're, I was sitting there with a group of, from the beautiful Wilson family. They're amazing people. And I, and I said to them, I cannot believe, I said, everything on this piece of paper you asked me to prepare for this meeting is true. And you can call my Rebbe from YU, you can call Rav Shechter, you can call my Rabbi, Rav Gula. I know those were two rabbis they both knew and respected. And you can ask them about me if, I, if I'm a truthful person, if I would write something down that isn't true. And the 50 or 60 names that are on this list are all truthful. And I can't imagine that you would allow the color of my yarmulke or my, you know, a little different hashkafa on you on women's issues or, or Israel or Torah Mada to prevent you from funding what is otherwise a successful Kiruv operation. And I got the money. I got the money. <laughs> it, was the la- it was the last year, by the way. <laughs> um, they were like, okay, one more year, you know. But those are the two ends. They, and, and by the way, they had a very good rationale. They said, listen, Rabbi Wilds, I understand. Let me tell you why we're doing this. You bring somebody into Judaism and you, you learn with them an hour a week, but they don't become Shomer Shabbos. Then you're just kicking the can down because those kids will still intermarry. Um, or maybe, you know, you're prolonging, you know, um, the assimilation process, but you're not stopping it. The only way to really stop it is to get a Jew to become from. That, that was their argument. And by the way, a very solid argument. Mm-hmm. Abad is like, you know, and I'm of course generalizing, like we have a hashkafa here. We have makoros that demonstrate that, that we just have to get more of God's, you know, of the insof, uh, the or insof into the world. And we, we get, we do that by getting Jews to keep mitzvahs and we can't control people. Now I'll tell you, most people feel much more comfortable with the latter Chabad approach. Okay. And there is an issue with the other approach because I'm not going to mention other cure of organizations, but I know this to be true where others will come to me or some other member of my staff. I used to go to blah, 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 but you know, they're only happy if I become religious. And Rabbi, to be perfectly honest, I like being part of the community, but I'm not interested in becoming fully Shemesh Rabbi. Started lighting candles on Friday night. Um, but sometimes I light candles after Shabbos starts. And I still want to be in a community, and I don't really believe in the conservative or reform movement. I believe in this ashkafically, but I'm not going to, you know, they use that word, but but I'm not. And and I said, I want MGE to be a place where we actually carve X amount of Jews a year, but we also provide a community where people who are not going to, you know, cross the finish line, so to speak, and will still feel comfortable. 
So you'll say, oh, Wilds is a Chabadnik in this approach, in this, in this issue. I'm a little in the middle because I do feel that, and I'm a little critical of Chabad on this, that where someone can cross the finish line, so to speak, I don't know what else to do. Someone can be Shomer Shabbos, Shomer Kashra, send their kids to Yeshiva Day School, blah, blah, blah. And we don't do our Heshtadlis to help them get there, then I don't think we're doing Kirib with that Jew. And that, what does that mean? Like, what's Lamay Nafkamina? So, meaning that you think, what's the, and I say this to my staff, because some of them are uncomfortable, particularly the millennials who are now working for us. They don't want, you do you, I do me. Okay, and I'll be there for anyone who has questions. I said, I'm sorry, that's not good enough. Because they don't know enough to know that the next step could be right now, it's Philly. They don't have a sense of like, of, of how doable it is to keep kosher, at least on the derisa level. In other words, you're saying they're largely they don't even know what questions are next in line. Yeah, and if you don't ask them, you say, well, you know, they'll come to me. Yeah, they're not going to come to you 100%. They'll come to you on certain things that they know of, you know, you know, look, and again, and, and that's why for, we have a goal every year at MGE, we want to try to carve, you know, cross the finish line, a dozen, 15 Jewish people. We feel out of the hundreds of people that we attract who become regulars, we have about 4,800 to 5,000 unique visitors a year, of which about six or 700 become regulars. Of those six or 700 become regulars, I feel like, come on guys, we can get a dozen to 15 to actually become without like hitting them over the head with a sledgehammer. But you do have to make that next line. Now, that next line might get shut down. And, and, and I've, this has happened. Rabbi, I appreciate it. I'm aware. I'm not interested. Okay. We still have a beautiful community for you to be part of. And we've done our best. But if we don't make that extra ask, it's like fundraising. You don't ask. I was going to say, it sounds just like fundraising. <laughs> you don't ask, you don't get. And and a lot of people have gotten up at a Shabbaton and said, you know, I never thought in a million years, but then I was coming to MGE and one of the persons said to me, why don't you consider, and I, I never considered it. You know, you have to put the thought and, and sometimes I'm a little critical, like, does Chabad do that? Now, Chabad's got like 3,500, you know, Chabad houses. I'm sure a lot of them are doing that, but it's not part of the Hashkafa to do that. I want to mention one other negative thing about the other Hashkafa, though. Yeah, please. I, I'm going to call it the Wolfson Hashkafa for now. I don't know what else to train. As you your... said, they don't give you money anymore, so it's okay. <laughs> no, but uh, they're they're amazing. I listen. Anyone not who, a criticism, uh, of course. Anyone who funds Kirov, whatever the approach, like. Um, but I think if you create that kind of mentality on your staff, it's going to come out in the wash, so to speak. People are sensitive and they have a sense. I'll, I'll tell you another one last story. Um, I had a woman, I remember very bright. She went to Yale for undergraduate. She was an attorney. Um, and she was coming to MJ for about six months. My wife and I had her to our home a few times and she was coming regularly to the menu and she just disappeared. So I phoned her up and I was like, hey, we miss you. What's going on? Everything okay? We got together. I remember we met at Starbucks and she said, oh, I just, you know, um, I, I came. I really enjoyed it. It was so nice. Everybody was so friendly. The services were interesting, very inspirational. I learned a lot. But I, I thought it over, and I'm not interested in becoming Orthodox. I said, okay, I understand. A little disappointed, but I get it. You still didn't answer my question. Where you been? Rabbi, I, I just assumed, you know, you're not interested in me continuing to come if I'm not interested in living that kind of 
And I said, did I ever say, anyone on my staff ever say or do or imply anything to give you that impression? And she was like, no, I just naturally. So people are thinking this already. Right. She was. People are assuming they're objects of Kiruv. And that's yeah, the goal. And, and, and the thing is, we have to go away from that. But I don't, but then I don't want to go and throw the baby with the back. You know, Richard Joel was one of my mentors, teachers, um, was the president of YU. He was very uncomfortable. He probably still is with the term Kiruv. He liked engagement, you know, Jewish engagement, because the word Kiruv seems to imply I'm here and you're here and I got to bring you up to where I, just like what we, we discussed in the beginning of our right. conversation. It doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And I feel that we're a little tiptoeing a little too much in the modern Orthodox world. And my opinion, I think if we, why are there so many more Haredim involved in Kiruv than modern Orthodox? Why? Why would that be? I mean, this is going to sound awful because I am a card-holding modern Orthodox rabbi. I believe in it. We don't believe in it enough. It's going back to the movie. Either we don't care enough about, or we don't believe it enough, or it smacks of proselytizing. And that's like that's like the Christian right. I got to stay away from that. Okay, well, that's a great segue into a different topic I also want to speak to you about, which is sometimes what might be called a sense of malaise or a lack of interest, serious spiritual engagement in the modern Orthodox world. And again, I'm part of that same world as well. But I think people are experiencing a type of spiritual anemia. I spoke with Rabbi Johnny Solomon a couple of months ago on my podcast, and we talked about that problem. They feel that a shul is a place to hang out with their friends rather than a place of encounter with the divine presence. So let's talk about that modern Orthodox world that you and I are both part yeah. of. How can we make us feel stronger in our connection to God? How can we make, whether it's the shul, whether it's any other place in our Jewish lives, how can we help to revitalize our Orthodox life, our Torah life, so that we feel more connected to God? To me, that's the essential part of everything. It's all about feeling that sense of the divine presence. And I feel that too often in the modern Orthodox or centrist Orthodox world, that's lacking. What would you suggest? First of all, thank you for asking that because it's so important. Um, and we're losing our own kids because of this. I am convinced that so many of the kids who are going off the derech, some of them come from great families. There isn't a week that goes by. I do not get a phone call. I get some from the Yeshiva Shavelt too, here and there, but mostly modern Orthodox. Um, you know, my kid is just not interested anymore. And it's usually not some sort of deep philosophical conundrum, to use your title there, that they're going through. They Thanks just, for the promo. Yeah, it's a great, great line. I'm still looking for a better name for my podcast. I hate my name. Wildcast. Like, what is that? Um, but... but um, it's just not exciting and compelling enough. My wife says this to me. My wife's a Balas Chuba. And she's like, she veered, before we met, she was getting sucked into more the, the Haredi light Kirov world. Because in order for her to give up the lifestyle she had, she's from Great Neck, very popular, a lot of great friends. Why should I give this up for something that's a kind of parva? It's either going to be like passionate and I'm going to go for it, or I'll just continue what I'm doing now to go for something that's, and here's the problem we have in the modern because we, you know, we pride ourselves on being nuanced. We pride ourselves on walking that line of not throwing everything out. That's not Torah 
and only embracing a Torah-only approach. We believe in Torah Mada. We believe in Zionism, even though it's not, you know, fully in line with Torah. We got our own versions of religious Zionism, of Kuk the Rav and all that. So it's much more nuanced. So it's by definition not going to be all in. But we've got to figure out a way of becoming passionate about that. Because without passion, our kids are going to leave it. And you got to start with the shul. Because we want to know why shuls are just like, you know, and I know what... So how do you start with the shul? What does that mean? What do we do? I've spoken in front of a lot of Orthodox rabbis on conferences about four or five ideas that I have from most Orthodox shuls. Um, Speaking in shul is a symptom. It's not the cause. People are speaking. No one speaks during a Broadway show. You ever notice? Or a movie. Because they're engaged. People are not engaged. And feel is not a simple thing. But we have to figure out a way of rocking our davening in a much more serious fashion, like Rabbi Moshe Weinberger, who have davened at many times. There's nobody speaking there. And yeah, they have a rule when you join as a member, you're not allowed to speak, and once in a while you'll get a shush from the rub up front. But they don't have to do a lot of shushing because the davening, the energy, the feeling is compelling enough. You know how I know Orthodox Jews are coming to my beginner's minion on Shabbos? Because they're the only ones who talk. No one's talking in my minion. Now, I have a different population. You know, familiarity breeds a little contempt. My chavar is not used to davening as often. The people are more respectful, there's more reverence. People come in shul, put their feet up, opening up a newspaper, they're chilling out. Like, I get that. But I'm also crazed about every single moment that they are there, giving them some inspiration or doing something different. I learned this from my teacher, Rabbi Luxstein, one of my mentors. I was a rabbi at KJ after OZ. And he said to me, you never allow pauses in the davening. There's too many pauses in our davening. What and kind those, of pauses? What do you mean? Like where? Even just between one thing and the next. We go from Kriya Satora to the next thing. There's like a little, you would never see that at a show. You would go, there's a seamless flow. Like right now we're having this podcast. I'm sure you're going to have somebody edit it and make sure that they're not moments of pause. Okay, It's a little thing, but it, but it goes a long way. Chazar Sashatz, Kriya Satora, those are times when people get disengaged. We have to do something during those periods of time. I'm not a posek, so we don't do Chazar Sashatz in MJE. We do Hecha uh, Kedushas. Now, I do that for educational purposes, and I have a cure of, you know, heter for that. But I don't know. I think maybe some shuls should consider doing that because, we're, you know, people are just not engaged during that period of time. Kriya Satora is not what it was meant to be. It's supposed to be a limud Torah experience. So why are we not learning? How many people can, for 45 minutes, just focus on the words and not get lost? The, the Bali tefillah we have. Okay, most people don't love chazanim anymore. But how many shuls have good Bali tefillah that know how to get the mitpalalim to really daven? I think mishaberach should be forbidden in shuls. And I don't care what they're raising in those mishaberachs. Because figure out a different way to raise the money. Because you're losing people between aliyahs. And I just think that davening should be shorter, more inspirational. It should rock. And people should be looking forward to it. And by the way, that's not an easy task. It's not an easy task. But I don't see rabbis, my colleagues, my friends. I don't see the balabatim. I don't see the community moving sufficiently on this. I also wonder, Rabbi Wilds, and I'm not even sure how someone would do this because it's a nebulous concept that sounds nice but doesn't actually mean anything. But the bottom line is, I don't know if we emphasize God enough. 
I know that sounds like a funny thing to say about shul. We're talking to God. We talk a lot about Torah, which is very important. We talk a lot about Judaism, which is very important. We talk a lot about the Jewish community, which is very important. We talk a lot about Israel, which is very important. How much do we talk about our personal relationship with Rebona Sha'olam, the master of the universe? Maybe okay. people do. I don't know many shuls. I live in yeah, Israel. No, it could no, be that no, I'm no. wrong. You know, you're, hitting, you're hitting on like, this might be number one. Like I sent my kids, um, we have three boys and a girl. My, my three boys went to Yeshiva Katan on the Upper West Side. It's a yeshivish place. It was a difficult decision. Looking back, my kids are older now. I'm 100% it was the right thing. Because they talk about God. Besides the passion and the energy, which is just... Well, what are you passionate about? That's the question. Yeah. It should be about God. We don't talk about God. Um, I think it's one of those things in our community that we've made academic and we think it's like less than sophisticated to speak about your feelings about the Rabbana Shalom. You sound like too much of a, a Meshugana or a Chassid or someone like, I, I don't know how it's become, I wouldn't say it's taboo, but it's just not. And by the way, it's in the yeshivas too. It's not just in shul. It's not just the rabbi of the, it's, it's the, the teachers in the schools. But in order to do that, here's the problem. We are not trained how to talk about God. In order to be trained to talk about God, you have to start learning, in my opinion, Kabbalah and Hasidus, at least like basic Ramchal, Tanya, and so on and so forth. If you don't get into that vocabulary, now you could talk about God from a medieval Jewish rationalist perspective, like the Rambam. I don't think that's going to work for people now. My, my personal take on that is that far be it for me to criticize the medieval rationalist huge Rishonim. But their conception of God, at least as they presented it to us, I don't think it speaks to people in the 21st century for the most part. It, it doesn't speak to a lot of people. I still use some of it. You know, old habits die hard. But I still use a lot of it because for my more rational students, they appreciate that. A Maimodian, Sajagon kind of like approach to Torah, mitzvot. But I, I always I balance it out because I agree with what you just said. It's not the language of our generation. Um, and I think that the curriculum in yeshiva and in smicha has to start changing in a dramatic way if we're going to, because you'll say, well, why don't we talk about God? Because your typical Rebbe in yeshiva or pulpit rabbi in shul is not equipped to do it. They're not. They might be a huge Tamil Chacham in terms of psak and in terms of certain machshavos like medieval Jewish, you know, and all that, Sajagon, the Rambam, the Ramban, but the Ramban, we're not even doing justice to Ramban, you know, who was a Makubal. And I just think if we we need to revive, we need to revamp the curriculum and teach a whole new vocabulary because our kids need to learn about their relationship with, with, with Hashem from a very young age. And we have to send our kids to Haredi places so they can get this. Why are we not doing this ourselves? I think that's a fundamental issue you're touching on. It's fundamental. And that, and I mean, I have so many ideas about it. And, and here's the thing. The reason I'm in it is because I can't do this without. You can't take somebody, who, even an Ivy Leaguer who's uber rationalist. If you don't talk about God and you don't talk about the way God plays out in the world, then why should they consider Judaism as a, as a, a path for life? Then let me ask you a question, Rabbi Wiles, because that directly relates to something you mentioned earlier. You said that most people who leave in the modern Orthodox world, it's generally not because they had some philosophical qualm. 
they're just not engaged with what's going on. They're just not engaged with Judaism in some way. And in terms of what you're talking about right now, with which I wholeheartedly agree, this idea of experiencing God being the key, and perhaps, this is what I said, more than what you said, perhaps moving away from the medieval rationalist model, that does raise the problem of how we should relate to our students, our congregants, our friends, anyone with whom we're sharing Judaism, how should we relate the issue of dogma, of propositions, of doctrine? A lot of people, they may not leave Judaism because of this, some do, but they have a hard time with certain doctrines. They just say, I, I can't accept all the Gimli Kariyamuna, for example. There's some that just, I, I can't believe in this or that one. And the question is, I sometimes wonder if we overemphasize dogma at the expense of experience. And sometimes it's not that we're saying this is not the way things are, but it's not the emphasis. And perhaps when we talk about God, we shouldn't be talking about what God is, which is what dogma is all about, but rather about the relationship with God and how that's expressed. Do you agree yeah. with that or disagree with 100, that? 100%. If we could, and, and it's not implying that those things are not important, that, you know, the, the Rambam's or Ravalbo or Sajigon's, you know, belief systems are not important but they're highly academic and they don't really impact people's daily personal lives. What does is the experiential. So if we spent more time teaching our kids how to use tefillah as a means of meditative, to meditate on certain ideas and to actually grow and, and to make just Torah much more real for people, it's not implying that all those other machshavos are not important, but that's not the language of our generation, and that's not what's going to move people. But what, what is ultimately going to keep people in the game and keep them growing in the game? It, it's going to be that they're finding meaning and purpose in their Yiddishkeit, and we're not giving people enough reason or enough meaning and purpose. We're just not, and we have to try something different. So let, let's talk about that. Let's talk about trying something different, because at MJE, you are trying something different. And we talked just a moment ago about shuls. And something which I've wondered about a lot, I've mentioned it before with different guests on the show, is the question of whether we need to create new types of institutions. Again, not to take away the shul. I happen to love shul. I wonder about the fact that so many people feel disengaged in shul, feel disengaged with our existing institutions. I mean, institutions like the synagogues or even organizations, which represent, quote unquote, the establishment. Is it important that we create new institutions, new types of places where Judaism can be expressed, which don't come with the baggage that existing institutions always carry? Mm -hmm. You're talking for from Jews, for Orthodox Jews? I'm talking about for from Jews. I'm talking for people who are either in the from community or who want to be part of the from community, however they define that. I, I don't, look, it, that would be sort of implying that nothing is working. I, I don't think nothing... Oh, not at all. I mean, because for some people it's not working. I don't mean to get rid of the existing institutions. I, I mean I to think, create new ones in addition. Yeah, I just, I just think we need to have... I don't think we have to create new institutions. I think we have to take the existing institutions and fix the broken ones. The broken ones are the ones that are just blah, that are not working for sizable portions of the community. Um they, the, the rabbis, I think, need some training how to speak more personally about God. And I think the classes have to change. The davening has to change. But the institution of the synagogue, I think, should remain a synagogue. It's just that it could come to mean something different for people. I don't think we have to create something, you know, through because that would imply that, like, there's just nothing redeemable about this whole thing. We just have to trash it and, and, and replace it with something new. I mean, I just give you a small example. Tishabov. We just finished Tishabov a couple of weeks ago, so it's a it's a painful day for people. How many people in the Orthodox community look forward to this? 
you know, do we see what happened in the Chorban as an expression on somehow as painful and it's punishment and there's sin and there's gallows and there's, but Rabbi Weinberger um, always likes to emphasize that everything is somehow coming from a place of love. And how can you explain that? You know, like, but we, but if you really believe that that's the MS, you really believe that everything that we, you know, we're almost like afraid to share that idea because like, oh, that sounds so like, how could the Holocaust be coming? But we have to talk about those things because God just looks mean and angry. And I'm not saying that, you know, oh, I'm going to, everyone's going to buy this, but they have to at least know that that is a part, you know, this famous Chazal that the Kruvim, the cherubs were embracing each other when the Babylonians came in and into the Heichal destroying the first. Now, how could that be? If the, um, the Gemara elsewhere says that the Kruvim would face each other whenever the Jewish people were following God's will and they would face away from each other when they were disobeying. When could there be more of a disobeying than when the Chorban took place? And, and the Gemara says that the Kruvim were embracing. They shouldn't have even been looking at each other. They should have been looking away. So I've heard a lot of beautiful Torah on this, but the, the essential, you know, the takeaway is that even the Chorban, all of this is happening from a place of love that HaKadosh Baruch Hu created and brought us into existence to give us the opportunity to benefit from his spiritual existence. So whatever happens is happening Latov. I don't think that's a prevailing ideology in the Orthodox world. I think if you're good, you get rewarded, if you're bad, you get punished. That's it. It doesn't start from a place of chesed for everybody. It depends. If you, and that's not Rabbi Weinberger's machshava. That's not a lot of ours. And I think if we started speaking in those terms, even something like Tishabov could be seen as a, as a real growth or, you know, the, the idea of not just crying over something in the past, but crying as a way of longing for redeeming the past, you know, to rebuild the, the base of Megdash. And speaking in those terms, I think could be a game changer for a lot of people. And it could change our attitude towards different chagim, different holidays, um, you know, not just commemorating some event that took place thousands of years ago, but what's the energy of, of Yitzhiyas Mitzrayim? You know, the whole, you know, Mitzar, Mitzrayim, your own. And I know the, in the Kirov world, these things, you know, we're all throwing these things around, but I think in the, in the regular mainstream Orthodox world, the word Mitzrayim comes from Mitzar, it means constriction. It's not just talking about getting yourself out of ancient Egypt thousands of years ago. It's about getting yourself today out of what's constricting you now. And how does Torah and mitzvahs enable you to get out of what's keeping you back from being successful and happy in life? If people could start seeing, see, we have to do that all the time in Kirov, or else we can't make a case for Judaism. But for some reason in the Orthodox world, we just kind of like assume everyone's going to stay with it. And we'll throw in a little kernel here and there. We have to jump on our heads <laughs> and demonstrate the profundity and the relevance of Torah if we, we even want to keep Orthodox Jews Orthodox. Okay, then let me ask you a question on that. And I know we don't have that much time left, but when you talk about demonstrating the profundity of Torah, what would you say? This relates to my question before about doctrine versus experience. Somebody comes to you and says, Rabbi Wilds, I want to experience God, but I just can't believe that this concept of revelation is really true for whatever reason. We don't have to get into why, but this person says, I just don't believe in a divine revelation the way that it's classically described by most of our Jewish commentators. But 
I believe in God. Is there a way for me to get close to God through Torah? How would you talk to that person? What would you say to that person? What I would say is that irrespective of your belief, whether this is rooted in the divine or not, you're talking to me. You're asking me the question. So I'm telling you, because it is rooted in the divine, okay, it's got some power to it. So do a mitzvah and connect to Hashem through that mitzvah. And it, it's not whether or not it comes from Hashem or not really is irrelevant in a sense. Now, it, it's not irrelevant because if it, if it was made up by a bunch of people, then its power to connect our souls with their divine source would be compromised. Okay, and it would lose its authenticity. But just because you don't believe, and that's okay for you not to believe it, it's not an easy, it's not a small pill to swallow. I get it. The classic understanding of Revelation at Sinai. Um, and I teach it, and I believe in it, and I think it's important to teach. And by the way, we should be teaching Orthodox kids this. Most rabbis are afraid because they're afraid there'll be some really smart kid in the class who's going to stump them. And now he's given people a question, you know, uh, but uh, there's no way around that. There's no way around that. I think we have to teach our kids why we believe the Torah comes from a higher place. And there are questions on it and there are answers and we, let's discuss it. And I don't think anyone says it's 100% provable. I don't think it is 100% provable, but I think we can make a very good, both rational and mystical case for it. Getting back to your the, the person who doesn't believe in Torah Minishamayim, um, let's say his name is Bob. Bob, you know how many thousands of years of great sages and rabbis smarter than you and I will ever be believe that this came from a higher place. That doesn't prove it did, but it just means that there's so much belief that it does come from Hashem that isn't it worthwhile for you to pick some parts of the Torah up and incorporate them into your life. And in doing, you can feel more connected. You don't have to believe that it comes from Hashem to feel more connected. Would it help? 100%. Because psychologically, the placebo effect, that if you believe, you know, it's going to help. But you don't have to believe in order for it to help because there are a lot of other people who do. And I think objectively, it does make a lot of sense to believe in it. And therefore, it's got the power. You know, the more I get into Kabbalah and Hasidus, the more you, you, you begin to subscribe to the notion that these mitzvahs have some magical powers on their own. And, and, and I will tell you, as a rabbi, I've been doing this for, for 25, 26 years now. People feel something when they put on tefillin. People feel something when they're learning. Now, if my son, who's a little more cynical, would say, oh, yeah, well, a lot of Christians feel that way when they pray to Jesus, too. I get it. I hear it. But that's why we also have a rational basis for explaining why we think our approach is correct and others are not. And that's why I do think we cannot throw out the rationality. We can't throw out the Rambam and Kreskis and Sajagon even today. Because when that question comes up, why does Judaism have more authenticity than, let's say, Christianity? And therefore, why should I be praying to the God of Moses and not Jesus? I'm not going to be using Kabbalah to answer that question. I'm going to be using the Kuzari's argument. And not everybody maybe will be convinced of it, but a lot of people will be. You know, it reminds me what you're saying right now, a little bit of a story that Rabbi Sachs, that's all, brought down in his book, The Great Partnership, about a famous physicist who had a horseshoe hanging over his door. You might have heard this before. And when somebody walked into his room, another colleague saw the horseshoe and he said, you have a horseshoe for good luck? You don't believe in that, do you? He answered, no, of course not. But here's the thing. You don't have to believe in it for it to work. <laughs> And you know something, Yesh It's not a crazy story. I will tell you, I have a friend who went to Gush many years ago and struggled intellectually with a lot of these issues. 
And when he he approached Rav Aaron, and Rav Aaron, when he asked him about one of these issues, said that I don't have all the answers either, but knowing that my Rebbeim, who are so much smarter than me, yeah, this is what Rav Aaron said, who was an off-the-chart genius, okay, believed in these things, and and I know that they had the same questions I had plus. So that that is actually, that doesn't prove anything. Right. But that helps us. Yeah, in fact, I know that article he wrote, The Source of Faith is Faith Itself in Jewish Action many years ago, he talks about that idea, how your Rebbeim themselves can be a source of strength. I remember he talked about Rav Chaim Brisker, who was the paragon of ethics and morality. And he remembered, he says that he was bothered by certain issues about Irini Dachat, various other moral issues in the Torah. And then he read a story about Rav Chaim Brisker waking up in the middle of the night to make sure there was no lost baby on his doorstep. So he said, well, I don't wake up in the middle of the night looking for lost babies. I sleep quite soundly. So clearly I'm not more moral than Rav Chaim Brisker. So if I have a problem with the morality of the Torah, it's probably less that I'm more moral and more that I have less amuna. So I know what I have to work on. That's what he said. Thank you for sharing that. That's very powerful. I want to ask you now about what's coming up. The Amim Noraim. We're entering Elul. And you have something called the 40-Day Challenge that you instituted. What is that? So I wrote this book last year. Um, Actually, one of my students from YU, I teach this outreach training course I mentioned before. And he's on my WhatsApp chat. You know, COVID forced a lot of us rabbis to sort of get out there on technology. So I started a WhatsApp group during COVID. A lot of people joined. And um, he was one of them. And he was like, you know, I'd love to publish a book. I'd love to, he runs Kodesh Press. And his name is Alec Goldstein. Um, Really amazing guy, very smart guy. And and basically we wrote up 40 of the ideas that I had put on my WhatsApp to be read each of the 40 days starting Rosh Chodesh Elul, which is Friday night, please God, and uh, all the way till Yom Kippur. Again, because these little bite-sized digestible pieces of Torah can go a long way with all sorts of Jews, whether you're observant, you're not observant. And um, so it's meant to be read every day. It's called the 40-day challenge. There it is with a little um, ladder going up, a little Jewish guy climbing up the ladder of the 40, because that these 40 days, as you know, are supposed to be used you know, it's amazing. No coincidences, of course, right? Moshe Rabbeinu comes down on Yud Zayin B'Tamuz, sees B'nai Israel sinning with a Chet Egel, spends 40 days in the camp davening that Hashem should forgive them. Rosh Chodesh Elul's 40 days later, says, come, come up for the second set of Lucha. He goes up, spends 40 days, 40 nights, comes down with a full Kapara atonement for the Jewish people on Yom Kippur. We think Yom Kippur is somehow... Yom Kippur is Yom Kippur because that was the day that Hashem forgave the Jewish people. So these 40 days carry within it the opportunity for personal transformation, tshuva, and ultimately forgiveness. So I thought it's a great thing. It's a, you know, every day, pick up the book, read a little piece, and you can also join the WhatsApp group that I have. I give an, an additional insight on that theme of the day for those 40 days. Rabbi Wiles, one final question just before we end. Can you give an idea for our listeners, something to think about as we enter Elul, as we move towards the Amin Noraim? Just a quick idea that they could take home with them today. Okay, I will, quick idea, and I'll start with a quick story. It's in uh, my second, uh, actually my fourth day. It's called Making Music with What Remains. You've heard of Yitzhak Perlman, the great um, uh, violinist. And it's an amazing story that he came out on stage and as he was tuning his violin, he broke one of the four strings and then continued to play the entire 
uh, song on three strings. Got a standing ovation when, and at the end when he was asked why he did that. He said, because that's our job. Is Our task, he said, is to make music with what remains. Now, I just love that because that's really what Elul is about. Anila Dodiva Dodi Lee. It's a time to accept our reality. And I heard this years ago from, uh, he made Aliyah many years ago, my friend Rabbi Eitan Mayer. Um, my, do- my, my daughter's going to his school next year, Midmo. And he had this great piece of Torah that relates to this story. If you take the words Elul and you put it backwards, it spells Lule. Lule means if only. Lu is no. Lule, if only not. If only things were not the way they were. Why am I missing that fourth string? Because that's what we do in life. Instead of embracing the reality that we have, the deck of cards we've been dealt, we focus so much on what we're missing, as opposed to believing that somehow that deficiency, that lacking, is meant for us to somehow learn and grow from. And it, it, you know, we do this. If only I got a bigger break at work, I would, you know, if only I was smarter, I'd be further along with my career. If only I had I had different parents, I wouldn't have such problems in my relationships. My students say, if only my my parents were religious, you know, it would be so much easier for me to be observant, if only. And the month of Elo comes along and says, you've got it backwards. Those lackings and those deficiencies were purposeful. They were meant and designed for us to learn and to grow from. The Ramchal famously said that every deficiency is given to each individual because that's exactly what that person needs to be able to grow themselves in the way that is necessary. He said, by the way, very interesting, sounds a little harsh. He says that a poor person is challenged with poverty in order to learn how to be samech b'chelko, and a rich person is challenged with all the money to see if they become indifferent to the plight of the poor. There's no such thing as anyone, and I know this from my own fundraising, there's no such thing as anyone with this perfect life. It doesn't exist. Elul is the time to sort of learn how to get over it because we can see it as an opportunity for growth. That's a beautiful idea. I really appreciate that. Rabbi Wilds, I learned a lot today, and I thought this conversation was so interesting. I thank you, Rabbi Mark Wilds. I appreciate you joining me today. It is an, uh, an, a pleasure and honor, Scott. Thank you so much for having me, and you should be matzliach and continue in your amazing interviewing and podcasts and just being marbits are conundrums for the rest of the world. It's <laughs> very kind of you. Thank you. Subscribe to The Orthodox Conundrum on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or anywhere else you get your podcasts. Please visit jewishcoffeehouse.com for other episodes of The Orthodox Conundrum, as well as many other great podcasts, including Intimate Judaism, The Mamanides Minute, Chochmat Nashim, The Francisca Show, and Let My People Eat. I'd appreciate it if you go to Apple Podcasts and rate and review The Orthodox Conundrum. It takes literally two minutes. It's just giving a certain number of stars and writing one or two sentences. Please like the Orthodox Conundrum podcast on Facebook and join our growing Facebook group, the Orthodox Conundrum Discussion Group, where you can feel free to discuss issues in orthodoxy in an honest and friendly environment. I hope you'll become a Jewish Coffeehouse patron on Patreon. Just click on the link in the description of this podcast, and you can get bonus episodes, Jewish Coffeehouse merch, and more. You'll get special episodes on all sorts of topics that are only available to subscribers, and you'll be helping Jewish Coffeehouse spread our message of a welcoming, intellectually engaged, and honest orthodoxy. Just join Patreon. It's only a couple of dollars a month, and you can stop anytime, so join today. Finally, do you have a message that needs to get out? Do you want to promote your business, your organization, or your cause? The best way is by producing a podcast, and Jewish Coffee House can make it happen. 
I have experience producing hundreds of podcasts, both for myself and for satisfied clients. Whether you want to learn everything you need in one day, or relax and record and let me do the heavy lifting, Jewish Coffeehouse Productions will work with you to make it happen and make it even better than you imagined. Let me help you today. Write to me at scott at jewishcoffeehouse.com or go to jewishcoffeehouse.com, click on Productions, and sign up for a free consultation. Make your voice heard, promote your cause, sell your product, and engage an audience now. I'm Scott Kahn. This has been the Orthodox Conundrum on jewishcoffeehouse.com. <laughs>